From somewhere deep in the cloud and the corners of the earth, this is the Killing It Podcast with a focus on helping you make sense and dollars of all things IT with your hosts, Dave Sobel, Ryan Morris, and Carl Polichuk. Welcome, everybody, to episode 166 of the Killing It podcast. I'm your cruise director, Carl, and I'm joined today by Dave and Ryan, as always. And as always, we just have a hell of a fun show going on here. We do. We're going to start with a fun question to kick us off, gents. I'm going to go right into it. Who is the real Batman? Or if you can't answer that, is there a real Batman? (laughs) Well, there is a real Batman. And and uh, I, I just have to say I'm a I'm a child of the '60s, right? So uh, I, I I go for the original TV Batman. So that's that's just me. Oh, you're going full Adam West. <laughs> uh-huh. Nice. See, no, I will say uh, I will say number one, I would go with Christian Bale as the most effective Batman. But I will fully acknowledge that there is no that. That is a title that can move and change with the times, right? Like, uh, contrary to uh, to most people out there in the world, I actually kind of thought Ben Affleck was pretty good. Wow, you go with your controversial take. So, because <laughs> I'm going to put my comic book geek hat on for a second and say, all right, so like, I'm, I can't go on board with Ben Affleck because I think he's a good Bruce Wayne, but a bad there Batman. And I just watched The Batman, and I think... Robert Pattinson is a great Batman, but he's an awful Bruce Wayne. And, and so, so, that, so I can immediately say, I will say Batman is a dark, I'm a child more of the 80s. Batman is a dark, uh, much more an Alan Miller sort of Batman. So Adam That's West the, the other break the for me is that because I'm a child of the 60s, like the, the, the real Batman uh, has got a sense of humor and doesn't take himself too seriously. So... Which is why I'm going to go to, it's Michael Keaton. Because Michael Keaton is a fantastic actor, pulls off the dark, and does a great Bruce Wayne. Like, he actually can nail both, and he got the tone right. And he's also this this sort of straight man in a crazy world of the 89 Tim Burton Batman. So for me, I'm going to say Keaton rules from a... From a yeah, gets see, it I, all. I'll, I'll go there with you because during the pandemic lockdown, like uh, had to find things to watch. Went back and rewatched the Michael Keaton Batman's, and um, uh, I at the time I was like, yeah, okay, whatever. It was fun. It was good. I, having seen him be a much heavier, serious actor since then, to go back and watch him, you were like, oh no way, he was actually legit. He he pulled off the menacing part way better in hindsight than I thought he did the first time around. So I'll, I'll endorse Michael Keaton. So as a, as a side note, I didn't know until I went to college and saw a color TV that the original Batman was in color because we only had a black and white TV. <laughs> and so, and to our younger listeners, I'm just going to let Carl's statement. <laughs> just let that sink in. That's how freaking old I am. <laughs> Did you know that the average MSP spends 10 hours manually inputting accounting data each week? That time is 120 prospect calls, a month's worth of the Business of Tech podcast. It's like a week of this show and a 
or building an entire LEGO Death Star. Gazinta Mobius can make your life easier through accounting automation. Automatic sync of invoices, expenses, and inventory from ConnectWise Manage into QuickBooks Online in just a single click of a button. With onboarding, direct support, and regular feature releases, Gazinta is a family-owned company dedicated to making software suck a little less each day. Visit them at gazinta.com. Hey, and a shout out to Heather and Brian from Gazinta who uh, have opened up uh, an Amsterdam branch and are moving to the Netherlands this week. All righty. So topic number one today is, uh, is a heavier topic. And this is, in, I guess, somewhat inspired from a very long article uh, called The Crypto Trap. Uh, from Wired. And I, I'm going to give a bit of an introduction, but just so you know, I, I don't want to talk about the topic, which is horrible. The topic is literally videos of child abuse, sexual child abuse involving the youngest children you can possibly imagine. So the, the people in our topic are among the most evil people on earth. And what intrigued me about this very lengthy article was the degree to which the criminal, the, the people who are in law enforcement are able to actually use Bitcoin uh, as the ultimate chain of evidence in a criminal prosecution. They literally, once you can get one IP address and figure out which accounts are being used to track money between Bitcoin and the real world, uh, you can then break down every transaction of every actor. And so um, I encourage you to read this very lengthy article, um, but it's, it's also just intriguing to me that what is often billed as the great uh, tool for doing illegal activity so that you are perfectly anonymous with just a little bit of information turns into the perfect tool to provide evidence against you in courts all over the world. And I applaud all of the law enforcement people literally around the world who are arresting people left and right as a result of the investigation that is highlighted in this article. It's an amazing investigative piece. And it, for, you know, for, for, for all the right reasons, it's, it's good people doing the right thing for the right reason against a really horrific crime. I, I, I keep coming back to the was money broken? Like I really do come back to is money broken? Someone, some I, I've been, I keep scratching it at crypto and the whole space. And I'm trying to divide it into two worlds. The first is the world of the theoretical and how I think this technology could be used. And then I, then it's the, how it's actually being used right now. And I'm trying to be very reasonable about the first while noticing that the second is just a giant scam. Uh, and uh, you know, it, it does not deliver on the promises. So, for example, like it isn't a completely anonymous form of money in a good way outcome for this story. But if you are depending on it for privacy, it is not clearly not that. Um, 
there's so many scams as it relates to crypto and coins and mint and all of that stuff that I just keep looking going. It's a crazy Ponzi scheme. Uh, it's supposed to be amazingly decentralized. Well, we lose all the benefits of centralization that a monetary group has while gaining all of this bad actor uh, lack of protection. But I'm still open to say I think the technologies can grow up and can become something, but I think they're they're still trying to solve the wrong problems. See, now I will go with this from I'll, I'll take two points of view, two snapshots of time. Right today, the world of cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, and all versus the conversation that we had on this program about a year and a half ago talking about now seriously can you understand the difference of between cryptocurrency and blockchain right we talked at length about there these two are not the same thing one is simply using a technology to accomplish a financial purpose but the technology the platform of bitcoin is is very very distinct and i remember that the consensus the three of us came to was blockchain makes sense it's valid it is strong and capable and for precisely the reason that it is public documentation of an unalterable record not private documentation public documentation so that whether you were using it for logistics and supply chain or financial transactions or uh, value chain contributions in a creative environment whatever your application of the blockchain is the whole point is I don't need a third party to keep the records because everyone in the world can audit those records. Well, that is the logical opposite and the absolute antithesis of what the crypto criminals are trying to do with it. Oh, look, it's super secret and I can get away with anything. No, you fundamentally misunderstood the purpose of the technology, which as you put it, Carl, is to have a perfect documented record of evidence of exactly what happened. Now, the fact that bad guys were using it first and using it in nefarious ways, again, whether it's cryptocurrency, which I think the market is speaking on right now, like that's the that's the second snapshot in time. I think that the marketplace might be questioning whether or not money was broken and whether or not this is the right solution. But what it does one more time, as I read this great big article and and again, phenomenal investigative journalism, kudos to people who can do that depth of work. When I read it, I came away with it going, see, we told you so. It does exactly what it was intended to do. So if you have an application where you want to do something that is built on do it in the broad daylight and everyone can verify who you are and what you did, blockchain is your jam. If, however, you got bad objectives, don't don't try to do it in the crypto world because they're coming for literally every click you've well, ever and, made. And it's somewhat unrelated bit. I have to ask why we're not fighting ransomware the same way. Because if you can break just one little chink in the armor and you can you can get an IP address and a, a wallet, you can break apart the criminal activity that is, you know, it's organized crime with regard to ransomware. Uh, one note that on the public nature that a judge made the decision that, hey, guess what? You don't have a right to privacy with regard to the Bitcoin uh, 
uh, chain because it is public. And so uh, I think that's going to go a long ways in the criminal investigation side of things. All right. Well, I want to jump in on that because, Carl, because I'm going to push back a little bit and say, well, we don't know that they're not doing it that way. And let me let me point out a couple of a couple of items. First off, investigative journalism like this takes time. This story is not from the past six months, 12 months. That's an important statement because if you think about what happened last summer with Kaseya, it's becoming very clear that for whatever you want to fault them for, Kaseya did a great job in working with law yes. enforcement. And in fact, the trail of crypto was used, which led to arrests. So I want to give some space for the, well, we don't know yeah, exactly, exactly what they're doing right now. And, and so we want to make sure that, that we say like, well, I actually do believe it's happening. I believe that our law enforcement has pivoted significantly in the last definitely 12 months, maybe 18 months, 24, I get a little murky looking back exactly when it started. But I feel comfortable saying the way I think they're operating right now is very different than it was earlier. And I think this is a foreshadowing of what we see to come. But unfortunately, we're going to run out of time here. <laughs> With luck, next month, there'll be an article in Wired about how they're going after the ransomware folks the same way. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm going to move us into topic number two, which one that one that fascinated me. It's an article from Protocol with, around, talking around the 911 emergency system in the U.S. and its, its outdated technology that has been around for 40 or 50 years. We depend on it for literal lives. And there's a lot of reason to move it to the cloud. It needs to be more scalable. It needs to be more demand, particularly if you think about what 911 systems are when you rely on infrastructure that is in locations, which can then go down because of the disaster in that area when you need that service. There's lots of reasons to consider moving it to the cloud. And Protocol digs into the thinking around that is going into this, that people are saying, yes, moving it to the cloud does make logical sense, yet, there is a lot of risk here, and ri this is one of those areas where risk is a different level than you know than comparing to say shopping going down, right? If if shopping going down, we're losing, we lose we lose money and we lose revenue. If nine one one goes down, people die, right? And it's that classic discussion about about reliability. There's also massive technical debt in place here. One of the reasons I thought it was a fascinating bit, and it was it was definitely pointing toward the, the value of the cloud. And the reason I actually wanted to bring it here was both of you had probably very useful insight on that. And Carl, I'm gonna throw it to you in particular, because you've done a lot of thinking previously on very seamless migrations. And I thought you might have some thoughts on, on the risk analysis here. Well, obviously the risk is that you get one thing wrong and one person dies, right? So, but, but the beautiful thing is, this is a perfect example of moving to the cloud with zero downtime because you can implement a cloud-based 911 and then gradually move over to it and fail back to the old system city by city. So that, with enough planning and enough money, which you know the government has, it's all our money, but they have it. Um, you could make this happen. The the most interesting thing is that, you know, you all know when you get a new phone with a new carrier, you have to register your phone's home location, but you may not be there. So, you know, if you call 911, they might go to your house and you're downtown. And so adding geolocation, which now, you know, most of us 
it can find us within about three feet. You know, it, it, it pops up little notes like, hey, Yelp says you should go to that restaurant down the street, right? Uh, that will be very helpful in a 911 situation. It's also the case that no matter where you take your phone, it's going to be better at locating you if it uses that geolocation feature. But again, you have to turn it on, you have to enable it, or the carrier has to enable it by default. So it's not without challenges, um, but I think it's absolutely time. Because, I mean, again, you guys have been all over the world. Uh, you go to the smallest country in the world, everybody's got a cell phone. See, and, and this is the hopeful part of the technology. Having, having spent seasons in the telecommunications and cable industries, right? You know, we're all, we're all connected to the internet and having worked on the side of the people who build those networks and maintain the head end capabilities and, and all of that, that infrastructure technology, uh, the evolution of 911 has been outrageously slow. Like to, to your point, Carl, there once was a time where from physical circuits, they identified the location of a 911 call. You didn't need to tell them where you were. And then we introduced cell phones and we all went, oh, shit. Now we have to physically tell the operator our location. As they figured out geolocation and applied it there, that's the gateway to the cloud. Because if you think of the value proposition of the cloud, you know, infinite resources that are recombined at a moment's notice to maintain flawless uptime and availability seems like 911 is the use case where you'd want to apply that but it only makes sense if you know where everyone is at that time it does beg the question of privacy and your uh, expectation of privacy in in various locations big brother does know where you are you just don't feel comfortable with admitting that yet right but 911 is a place where I think everybody will get behind it and say, you know what, you're right, in that use case, I'm in, you need to know where I am at at all times. It is, as with many of our infrastructure systems, when, Dave, you mentioned the concept of technology debt. When you think of 911, when you think of the electrical grid, when you think of the basic um, data distribution pipelines that run across the country and between countries in, in little pipes on the bottom of the ocean. It, we have phenomenal global capabilities with our infrastructure systems held together by duct tape. and <laughs> so, it, it is remarkably old fashioned at the infrastructure level. In 2019, I was in a car accident and my uh, video camera, uh, dash cam knew where I was. My car knew where I was, my cell phone knew where I was, but I had to tell the police where I was. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is, it is remarkable what commercial advancements we've made in technology that government has not yet adopted because, you know, nobody wants to be the one who says, you're right, we should modernize 911 and the electrical grid, that'll cost a trillion dollars. And I'm the guy who you get to blame for that expenditure. There's a question of at what point is it just no longer optional? And I think leading with the use case of 911 is exactly the place. I, I don't know of anybody who has filed a, um, a suit about violation of privacy based on you knew where I was to come and rescue me when my car was in an accident. <laughs> well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw out two 
quick ideas to, to wrap us up. The first here is, is that the article makes an interesting point around culture, right? And public safety being very, very slow to adapt. And I would advise anybody in this space to be thinking about culture as you consider the way you approach customers. And that's definitely a lesson here. The other thing is, is there's, there's a series going on over at the Atlantic about, the, about a building cultures of abundance. We oftentimes focus around, particularly the U.S. system, is very much focused on an uh, economy of scarcity, where making things scarce creates value. Uh, they've been working through the idea of what if we take a model where creating abundance creates value. And I wanted to throw that in here because this is definitely one of those areas where if you change the way you think about this and say, we started with cost, but what if we could actually create a culture where emergency response was available, reliable, consistent, and infinitely scalable to respond to any situation? That feels like it unlocks an, a lot of particular value, and I, I've been trying to apply that lens, and this is where I would, would, I would encourage politicians, public policy people to, to take a different approach. What can you open up by offering that level of abundance? And it's also a great time with regard to smart cities and, you know, I mean, you talk about the cost of infrastructure, they're going to be replacing every streetlight in the United States very soon. Many of them have already been replaced, you know, so that they can interact with cars, they can interact with, uh, other transportation and so forth. And a lot of the transportation companies and industries are gonna be paying a piece of that bill. And so I think upgrading all of this at the same time makes sense. And I would also say, hey, if you know, you wanna start a business today and make a billion dollars, combine the 311 and the 411 and the 911 into one infrastructure that has the geolocation and the quick response and put it all in the same you know, set of clouds, not one cloud, set of clouds. <laughs> no, no single points of failure, right? That's a good thing. Um, so I, again, I think that's a great big topic and a ton of not just global importance, but also local application. On the same note, I want to move us over into our third topic where we are linking to a couple of articles about a new set of standards and a new set of recommendations about how to apply standards in the world of cybersecurity. So we're all familiar with the folks at CISA, the Computer Information Security Agency, uh, uh, a good example of a group of government folks doing something that we all want them to do, as opposed to others that are doing things we don't want them to do. Uh, they've come out with a new set of guidelines and recommendations. And this time it is based on something that I think is painfully obvious, but it is worthy of a discussion out here. Dave, you made a comment in the last topic about, you know, imagine if you moved from scarcity and proprietary isolation to abundance and standards and open accessibility. Uh, seems to me like that's what we're trying to do in the world of cybersecurity with these standards. The question that CISA is asking now is, is it reasonable for industry to self-attest that they are compliant with cybersecurity regulations? In other words, these are the rules you must follow in order to do business with the government, in order to do business in secure environments, et cetera, et cetera. Do you comply with those? Um, uh, what, what do you guys think about self 
regulation and self-attestation in the world of cybersecurity. No, let's move on. <laughs> now, now, all right. So, all right. So, so this, this is, I'm going to, you know, obviously I'm going for the joke here. So the problem with, with self-reporting is the fact that it is just simply too easy uh, to be unclear or, or on a positive end, unclear on a negative end, fraudulent. Now, the flip side of that is I want to, again, I want to leave space for, look, the reason that they've backed off to self-reporting was that trying to put any kind of level of auditing to it is going to prove to to shrink the market in such a way that they can't get anyone to bid on gigs. Like they can't get anyone to do the work because they aren't willing to do to to do the certification to get there. So you instantly squash the market and then you've got no ability to deliver on the solution. So there's this sense that the 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 middle ground of self-reporting is good enough. Uh, I get it, right? But I, I what I what I want to see here is potentially some more teeth on as a compromise on if there is inaccuracy in the self-reporting. I think that we probably should have more, a little bit stronger self-reporting, but more importantly, once you self-report, if that information is found to be incorrect, it, it ups your liability at a much more intense level. Again, I look to the idea of like, look, you will just pay the fine to do the business if it is more economical to just pay the fine than solve the problem. So let's make sure that the fine has enough teeth that at least as a compromise, if you've done the self-attest and it is not found to be inaccurate, now the penalties are even worse. Right, and actually that's kind of where we are now is that, you know, there are not enough resources on earth to manage the the compliance of every software developer. Like, for example, you could become, anybody listening to this could be a software developer this afternoon, right? So, you know, the, the idea that you are somehow magically going to be compliant with all of these requirements is just ridiculous. Because um, you don't even know what they are until you get into it. So, but the, the beautiful thing is what they're saying now is, look, there's these guidelines. We'll start with something like CMMC, which has many different layers. Uh, and at the entry level, you can say, look, I'm complying with that, but now you are going to be held responsible. It's like you say you're, you're complying with that, great. You can self-attest to that, but you can be held responsible. If you say you're complying and you're not, then we're gonna come after you. And uh, so it's, it's kind of this happy medium pushing us in the right direction. Um, the downside is that you have NIST and CISA and FedRAMP, which is the federal risk assessment and management program, it's like, ah, you now have multiple federal programs plus whatever state programs pop up, all giving guidance about this. And uh, with luck, they will all always work together in perfect harmony. But so far in the history of government, that hasn't happened. But, you know, it might in this case. <laughs> well, see, uh, as, as a group of people who grew up prizing certifications, right? Endorsements and and authorizations, things that say, don't take my word for it. This very trustworthy body over here has endorsed my skills and abilities in whatever particular area, right? Our industry grew up in that world. And, and as a result, my mindset has always said, 
I believe that enabling the individual to be better at the technical skill is the only way that you will ever achieve better performance because you can't do it from the top down, right? I agree with you, Carl. It's just a question of manner. Uh, as a cybersecurity person, as somebody who's been intimately involved in that industry now for 22 years, um, I, I, I begin my assumption with, we suck at cybersecurity, the government needs to institute standards, and there has to be rigorous enforcement and a gateway. And then I do the math and I realize, well, that would just absolutely devastate the economy because there's no way we will ever hire enough federal meat inspectors to inspect the meat of software and make sure that it is fit for human consumption by the time it reaches the marketplace, right? That's already an inefficient example in the non-technical world. It would literally never scale to what we do. So I default to a market environment and I go back to the mentality that says, okay, so I agree with Dave, you can self-assess, you can report your compliance, and if you lie about it, you need a heavy, fine, big, fat punch in the face so that you don't think that that's an okay way to go forward. But on the flip side of that, I think a cloud solution provider, a managed service provider of a number of different business models would be in an ideal place to say, you know what, this is what we do. We eat, sleep, and drink this kind of compliance, and we are here to issue the good housekeeping seal of approval to say that you, in fact, are compliant like that. And then your customers will look around and go, cybersecurity matters. That's really, really important. Most of these guys just claim to be good enough, but these guys have a good housekeeping seal of approval. I think I'll choose them for my world. Um, I think that that's a market-driven phenomenon that can motivate people to become not just not just claim that they're compliant, but actually be better at compliance. So I want to point out an internal inconsistency that we have to uh, address here. So in the, our first article, we're praising law enforcement, a government agency. <laughs> and, in, and, in, and in Section 3, Carl, you then immediately turn around and say government agencies don't deliver. We they, live in a complex they are, world. We live in a complex world, but but I want to. I just want to observe that because because by the way, this is one of those buttons that I think is worth pushing back on. It is really easy to criticize government broadly. There are lots of public servants that are doing really good work and delivering good stuff, and oftentimes don't have the resources, don't have the investment, don't have the commitment from the public, from Congress, and such. And so I want to make sure that we're we're not oversimplifying the problem. Like there, you can actually fund agencies and get measurable results out of it and so i actually am in the last year and a half loving what's come out of nist on cmmc and with regard to hipaa compliance and cybersecurity, i'm loving what's coming out of cisa i wish both of them would yep. engage a conversation with smaller businesses before they make these decisions but again most of their audiences gargantuan companies who do business with the federal government. But I will point out, we, we, we are pointing to one of the PDFs from NIST, which specifically says that this includes, we are talking about cloud service providers. So, you know, if you're listening to this podcast, it's probably you that they're talking about. Probably you too. <laughs> yeah, well, and see, I'll give you guys a really quick real world example. So I grew up in a home where my father was a state trade commission enforcement officer. He was a government agent out there trying to enforce the world of 
good consumer practices among businesses. And later on, when he became completely frustrated with the inefficiency there, he went over to become a, an investigator and an inspector with AAA to look at the hospitality industry, to verify good business practices, et cetera, et cetera. Um, what I will say is that's the roadmap. Right. If government can set standards, cool. But then if we can privatize and put a profit motive associated with a higher diamond rating on that evaluation scale, I think people will volunteer to comply. But it has to be backed up by what Dave said. If you violate the self-reporting, you need to literally get the existential punishment, not just a slap on the head. <laughs> Final word, Dave. I know. I think I think we've covered it. We certainly have given a lot of people thought. And, I, and again, from a resources perspective, if you're listening to this and you're delivering IT services, you should be leveraging these incredible resources because, as we've said, CISA, NIST, they are. It seems like all of these resources are incredibly valuable for you and your business. Uh, final disclaimer: This program does not encourage you to punch people in the face. And that will do it for episode 166 of the Killing It. Killing It. Oh. Maybe sometimes. <laughs> okay. Thanks for tuning in to the Killing It podcast. Please share with your friends and tell everyone to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and all the podcast places. Join us next week and help us keep killing it in the technology business.